Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so excited to be joined by Luisa Griva. Luisa Griva is the Director of Global Advocacy for the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Previously, Ms. Griva was Vice President for Programs and East Asia Director at the National Endowment for Democracy. With past experience at Special Olympics International, the Corporation for National and Community Service, and the United Nations Development Program. She is an experienced nonprofit advisor and an expert on human rights in China, having traveled and worked in China since 1980. Her first visit to East Turkestan was in 1988. She currently serves as Washington Fellow for CSW, an advocacy group promoting freedom of religion or belief for all peoples and faiths. Mitz Griva has served on the Amnesty International USA Board of Directors, the Virginia Advisory Committee of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, the International Advisory Committee of the Coalition to End Transplant Abuse in China, and the Liberties Promise Board of Directors. She is the author of several book chapters on ethnic issues and human rights in China, and has testified before Congress on democracy in Asia. Louisa, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks. The Uyghur Human Rights Project, or UHRP, is a human rights research reporting and advocacy organization focused on promoting human rights and democracy for Uyghurs and others living in East Turkestan. When I first became aware of the plight of the Uyghurs, what I would argue is one of the most horrific and egregious examples of human rights violations on the planet today, I was shocked and even outraged that this has not been made the priority focus of advocacy groups, first world nations, and truly every global citizen concerned about the erasure of a people and culture at the hands of the People's Republic of China. I must warn listeners that much of what you will hear today is deeply troubling, and my hope is that awareness will be raised, which can lead to advocacy, reform, and a global call for China to halt these atrocities once and for all. So the first question some listeners may have is, who are the Uyghurs? They are ethnically and culturally a Turkic people living in the areas of Central Asia, commonly known as East Turkestan, which comprises one-sixth of the total land area under the control of the People's Republic of China. The Uyghurs have a rich cultural history going back almost 4,000 years and practice a moderate form of Sufi Islam. Much like Tibetans, Uyghurs in East Turkestan have struggled for cultural survival. It is impossible to make sense of the current crisis without an understanding of the historical background 
This is well documented, and the present generation of Uyghurs, many of whom are the descendants of previous activists, are profoundly conscious of the distinctive trajectory of Uyghur history, a history that is intertwined with, though not completely subsumed in, the history of the regional great power, China. My first question for you, Louisa, is to ask you to elaborate upon the rich and distinctive history of this region, which occupies a position along the historically significant Silk Road that bridges mainland China and ancient Arabic, Persian, and European cultures to the West. And also, if you could put in context for our listeners the significance of the religious and cultural juxtaposition of the Uyghurs and the People's Republic of China, as this sets the stage for my follow-up questions for you about modern-day atrocities that are occurring. Thank you so much, Sonia. You've really grasped the hugely significant situation that's incredible to all of us that it could be happening in the 21st century. The Uyghurs are a distinct people with their own language, faith, tradition, and history. And until the 1940s, almost everyone who lived in the Uyghur region, their homeland of East Turkestan, was either Uyghur or a related Turkic people, such as the Kazakhs, the Kyrgyz, and some Uzbeks. Very few uh, Han Chinese people lived there. But in the modern era, and after the Chinese government's, uh, the current Chinese government's takeover of the region, when the Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army came in in 1949, uh, it became considered a part of modern China. And the distinctness of the Uyghur people, you, you really, in any other situation, you'd call it a nation. Uh, it's an ethnic group um, with a long history. It certainly fits the cri- many of the criteria for be consi- being considered a national group, uh, which, of course, at this point does not have its own government. Many of our listeners may wonder, why is there a need for UHRP and other human rights organizations that are especially focused upon this group of people and these atrocities? It is important to underscore that China is under a communist regime. Due to the control on information from China, accurate and timely analysis of developments in East Turkestan is extremely difficult. However, Human rights activists agree that without critical support from Uyghur-run human rights organizations, very little information from within East Turkestan will emerge. So, Louisa, can you tell me more about this control of information from China and why we must rely upon drone footage and satellite images, some of which have been leaked through the mainstream media, to track some of the occurrences in the Xinjiang or Uyghur region in China. Also, what other sources of information does your organization, Amnesty International, and other human rights organizations rely upon in order to further elucidate the atrocities occurring to the Uyghurs? I will offer that according to numerous global intelligence sources, including the U.S. State Department, more than one million Uyghurs ethnic Kazakhs, and other Muslims have been placed in internment camps across China in a concentrated effort to erase religious and ethnic identities. Camp officials have abused, tortured, and killed as many 
as 20,000 detainees, according to the Uyghur Human Rights Project. It is estimated that there are more than 380 internment centers, with 14 of them still under construction as of September 2020. And all of this is based on satellite detection. Collectively, between the internment centers and factory facilities identified by BuzzFeed News, which I will have in the podcast notes, they cover more than 21 million square feet, nearly four times the size of the Mall of America for our U.S. listeners, and they rival some of the largest prisons in the world based on size and capacity. Absolutely. Actually, your question, why is there a need for a specialized research group like the Uyghur Human Rights Project? That's been asked, and and Uyghur Human Rights Project started in 2004. The idea actually started in 2002. And I was not working for the organization at the time, but I, I worked on human rights in China. And that was exactly the question we asked ourselves. There are so many groups working, you know, reporting on human rights problems in China. Why focus on the Uyghurs? A couple of reasons. One is, as we've discussed, the Uyghurs have their own language. So in order to speak uh, directly with witnesses, people who are there on the ground, um, people who may have emigrated to let's say, to other countries, and but never learn Chinese or don't have English, it's very important to have an organization that can interview people in their own native language, who know the culture, who are the influencers, the creators of expressions of art and culture, and intellectual leaders, who are part of the, the society, um, who can do their own analysis, and of course, who have been victims of this uh, latest crackdown. So there's the language. There's un- the problem. There is so much going on. China is such a large country and has had 70 years of human rights abuses. So even an Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, who've done such heroic work and specialized China-focused human rights uh, research organizations, many of them uh, in the U.S., they, they just don't have the capacity to cover it all. And because they're made up of Chinese people who don't understand the culture, don't have a feeling for it. They know very, very few Uyghur people. It will naturally become a black hole of information. And finally, I want to mention something that's a little bit uncomfortable, but those researchers who are very, who really know China well, who can, let's say, read Chinese language documents, who can talk to uh, Chinese journalists who uh, may, are completely censored, may not have been able to report on something, but may have information. Let's say, let's just even say the people outside China who are China specialists who are either Chinese themselves, who've, who've left China, or um, other scholars who've learned, uh, they are all influenced by a 70-year history of Chinese government propaganda of a, a very uh, colonialist nature. In other words, the Uyghurs and many other groups who are not Han Chinese are basically looked down upon. We could go so far as to say, especially now, there's a officially mandated racism and when I say mandated, I don't mean that it's tolerated or there's a legacy of you know, discrimination against uh, the other or people seen as backward. The government itself turns out a tremendous amount of messaging about the dangerous nature of, of Uyghurs who identify as Uyghurs. Like basically identifying as a Uyghur is an indicator that you don't follow, quote, ethnic harmony policy. So simply asserting your identity is a violation of state policy. 
with that kind of background, if you hire a, a really excellent uh, Chinese researcher who's very dedicated, who has all the languages, you know, both, let's say, the world language and Chinese, that person will still have a lot of blind spots based on an entire lifetime of what we might call brainwashing with to, to not have sympathy for Uyghurs. So it's really the rare, uh, but a growing group of, of Chinese people who are willing to have that sympathy. And so that's why um, it's really important for a Uyghur-led group like the Uyghur Human Rights Project to be able to focus attention. But you did also question, ask a question about information sources. Would you like me to go on with that? That would be wonderful. Absolutely. Right. So bringing forward Uyghur voices is critical to understanding the human rights uh, conditions that Uyghurs uh, had lived in uh, right before this massive securitization, securitization of the um, current crackdown. And so witnesses who can talk about their own previous experiences of torture, of incarceration, of forced abortion. This is, that's one source of information. Since the Chinese government in the 2011, 2012, uh, 2014, and 2016 periods, or each, each of those years, there was a, a renewed, increased push to securitize the region, to bring technology to, to monitor people, to use very aggressive language in training the, in, for the Beijing to have the local officials see what their job is. Their job is to pacify or create what they call, quote unquote, stability to the region and to have a strike first policy against any possible threats as defined by the Chinese government. So in the, under those conditions, information became harder and harder. More and more journal, foreign journalists were kept out. Uh, it's very dramatic, actually, if you look at some of the tremendous work that's been done by all kinds of major media outlets from the BBC to ABC to NBC. The journalists go, they record, but mostly all they can record is how the local minders or officials are covering their cameras and telling them they can't go somewhere, following their taxi uh, to prevent them from talking to anybody, from seeing the outsides of these gigantic uh, prison camps. So without, with journalists being gradually shut out uh, to the point where there are almost no international journalists going there uh, anymore in 2020, there were a few uh, doing wonderful work in the past few years. So right now, we don't have the international reporting from the ground. Instead, we have witness testimony, relatives of Uyghurs talking about things they've heard indirectly, because you, you know, you're not allowed, this may be incredible for your listeners to realize, if you, if you have a relative at home in the Uyghur region, in Xinjiang, and you're in abroad, you cannot call them, because that would brand them as having a connection with a foreigner. A connection with a foreigner is designated as, quote, a sign of extremism, right, which has to be uh, punished and, and the person needs to be re-educated in one of these uh, camps. So that, that information is cut off. Instead, we rely on the satellite imagery, wonderful work uh, being done, and I know you're giving links. Then there are some leaked Chinese government documents. I personally think I would have expected more leaks. This kind of comprehensive crackdown requires a lot of written documents, and but there have been several significant leaks where people on the ground, officials in China, risk their liberty and it may be perhaps even their own lives to get these caches of documents out. One is known. One set is called the Xinjiang Papers. Uh, another was called the China Cables. These were both came out in the fall of 2019, and showed 
really shocking uh, policies of the government. The takeaway quote is that the policy was to be show no mercy. And also, here's another one, round up all those who should be rounded up. Meaning officials were being told just round up Uyghurs, uh, don't leave anyone out, anyone who's suspicious or uh, has any potential threat to stability uh, should be rounded up. So it's it's almost like a, a puzzle, putting together puzzle pieces, except they're not all from the same puzzle. Just in this tremendous veil of secrecy, being able to piece together some leaked government documents with other evidence is is how we know what's going on. And I guess I, I wanted to point out, what is the significance of the secrecy? It means the Chinese government knows that this would horrify the world uh, and even horrify Chinese people. So it's trying to both carry out a massive program and keep it secret. I would absolutely agree with that. I traveled to China for my executive MBA program, and they are beautiful people. But as you stated, they only know what the government permits them to know, to see and hear. So I would agree with you that there would be horror and shock, even within their own country. That's right. Although, again, the Chinese government has provided some protection against ordinary Chinese people being shocked by promoting the idea that anyone who is rounded up en masse, women, men, women, no reason, no reason, the, the government has said, well, these people are a threat to us. They're, they are infected by an ideological disease. That's a direct quote, meaning they're connected to radical Islam. They have foreign ties to international Islamic terrorism. So a constant reporting or for those who, Chinese people who live in the region or who are paying attention, they truly have developed a fear of Uyghur people. So, you know, one of the ways this is enforced is even in, in Chinese cities in the eastern part of China, like where you were visiting in your own trips, in the last several years, started with the Olympics in 20, 2008, very intense in the last several years, all guest houses and hotels and so on are under orders that if anyone shows up with an ID that shows that their ethnic identity is Uyghur, so this tells you something, this is a government that has an ethnic identity on your national ID card, they must call the police. So not only do you not give them a room, you have to call the police. So that would certainly make any ordinary person think, wow, this, this is really dangerous. I fear these people. I think it's right that the government does what's necessary to protect the rest of us. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. 